Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today we have Dr. Dustin Jones joining us on Joey's PT Insights. Dustin is a coach and geriatric physical therapist with a background in home health, outpatient orthopedics, and fitness. Dustin is a member of ICE, the Institute for Clinical Excellence, and he's also a teacher in the modern management of the older adult courses. Dustin is a board-certified geriatric clinical specialist and CrossFit Level 1 trainer. He blends his fitness and geriatrics background to help older adults improve their lives at Stronger Life in Lexington, Kentucky. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Stanford University Athletics. Dustin, thank you so much for joining us on JOSPT Insights. Before we hop into this, I, I have a feeling that our listeners have a different idea of what your day entails. Can you talk to us a bit about what you do at Stronger Life and how do you use your education and your experience as a PT to serve older adults? Thanks for having me on. Super pumped to talk about this topic and with y'all. I would say I'm I'm a uh, a sports PT. That was my jam. Uh, definitely early on in my career, ATC and undergrad, got the CSCS right out the gate. Went to PT school. Like, all right, I'm going to work with athletes. And then I ended up falling in love with geriatrics. I graduated in 2011, but the majority of my career has been in home health, which once again, I never thought I'd be in that setting. And the skills that you all have, that some of the listeners have, are potent for our patients, our athletes, for sure. But my gosh, they're potent for so many of our older adults. And I just fell in love working with this population, even in the home setting. But as I came through that portion in home health, just saw the lack of community services as well. Once folks were discharged from my care, or even from outpatient as well. And now I've shifted a lot of my focus to the realm of fitness and wellness. So now my day-to-day is in the context of a business called Stronger Life, uh, which does group classes and individual training specifically under the fitness umbrella. What really like lights me up is, is just serving these folks and just really helping these later years be the best years of, of their life. So a day for me is coaching groups, working with people one-on-one and, and talking to lovely folks like you as well, do, do some continuing education. We're going to be talking a lot right now about falls risk prevention, the strategies that go into that treatment evaluation. But can you just set the stage for us about, you know, what are the stats on falls and how important are they in the world of the the, the quality of life for our geriatric patients? The stats are pretty crazy. 30% of community dwelling older adults are going to have a fall each year. Scary about, about this is it's a reported fall. And when you look at the definition of a fall, you know, typically I would traditionally think, and many of the folks I work with, they think of a fall as this kind of violent, traumatic tripping, going from standing and just crashing onto the ground. But a fall is actually an inadvertent lowering to a lower level, not necessarily the ground. And so that stand, pivot, sit, transfer where my feet get mixed up and end up flopping, but I'm okay on the recliner or the couch or the chair. I don't fall to the ground. That technically is a fall, but no one's going to report that. So those stats, 30%, you know, one third of of independent community dwelling older adults fall each year, that's artificially low, which is wild to think about. So that in of itself, the quantity of falls is kind of crazy. But then you think about the impact of an injurious fall. And so this is where some of the the injury rates are really interesting when you look at the trends of, of types of injuries 
across the lifespan that there are some really interesting graphs that show how the injuries really start to shift in terms of of the proportion of what type of of injuries people are experiencing. When we hit that kind of 65-year-old point, we start to see an exponential increase in some of those traumatic injuries like TBI, like a femur fracture, for example, upper extremity fractures as well that are associated with falls. They go up exponentially. And these are some of the most costly falls as well to our healthcare system, but then also people's quality of life. And so if they do have a fall, that's tough for a lot of them. But if they have an injurious fall, that's it. I mean, that's maybe the difference between them being able to continue to stay in their home or continue to be able to do the things that bring them a lot of joy and and sense of fulfillment and purpose. And so these are a fall, like for many of us, we fall and we get up, we don't think much about it. But for for a lot of our folks, older adults that we're working with, it's it's a big, big deal. And they know it too. There's a lot of fear surrounding this, this topic as well. So then how are you doing the very important job of assessing the risk for falls then in this population. And I'm actually curious about how you, since you've done it in both settings of like the home health physical therapy setting and also that group setting, if you do it differently. Much of my experience is in home health. And if you have ever done home health, you do as a physical therapist, you know, you do a physical therapy evaluation, but you also do an Oasis start of care. And if you've ever done home health, you're probably like, oh my gosh, don't start talking about Oasis Starter Cares. It is a beast of a piece of documentation. And I hate it, but I love it because <laughs> I hate it because they take forever and they ask you all these questions, but I love it because it really shifts your focus to being more medically minded and looking at some of these risk factors. And so in from that setting and in, in from the clinical side of things, you really start to see how these other risk factors really influence the risk of falling because traditionally I would just focus on physical capacity and ability. What's their bounce of it? What's their, their stepping strategy looking like? What's their reaction timing? How are they handle these different perturbations? What's their strength? Those types of things, which are important and they definitely impact people's risk of falling. But some of the bigger factors are going to be polypharmacy or if they're on falls risk increasing drugs or FRIDs, that alone is going to exponentially increase their risk of falling their visual acuity. Have they had uh, a visual assessment within the past 10 years? I had so many folks that had 10, 11 year old prescriptions that limit their ability to see changes of, of depth of surface or going from dark to light rooms and vice versa. Like those types of things that we typically don't think about or, or don't assess create a very vulnerable situation for these individuals. And so the Oasis Starter Care kind of walks you through that to assess these extrinsic and intrinsic risk factors. I think for our folks listening, a really good resource that I highly encourage you to check out that will help give you an algorithm to check a lot of these things is the CDC's study. S-T-E-A-D-I stands for Stopping Elderly Accidents, Deaths, and Injuries. Branding like at its finest, but that resource is awesome because it basically gives you an algorithm to be able to check a lot of these risk factors that like as a home health clinician, I would look at all the time, but an outpatient, I never would. Now in the context of fitness, what I think more about is I think about those risk factors, but I think about the other side of the equation that we often neglect. We think about falls prevention a lot, right? Like what can we do to prevent the next fall, because we usually see people that have already had the fall. Now, what I'm thinking more about is that other side of equation is, well, what if I can prepare this person for a fall? If one in three people are going to have a fall, 
this year and that's artificially low, I need to prepare people for the event of a fall. That could be teaching them how to fall, how to fall on the ground to disperse load to reduce our risk of injury, but then also how to get up from the freaking ground. I've had so many folks that they're so scared to death of the ground. They haven't been on the ground, not associated with a fall for a long time and equipping them with the ability to handle themselves in that situation does a lot of things for them, but it improves their confidence tremendously. And they believe that they can handle themselves and do lots of things without losing their balance. And we know with the research, especially related to like the falls efficacy scale, the FES, if you've heard about that, is that if we have more confidence in being able to do things without losing our balance, we're less likely to fall. And so in the fitness side, I kind of focus on that falls preparedness side. We're working on getting the ground. We're exposing them to the ground, doing tons of floor transfers, aka burpees. And these folks are becoming very, very familiar with this very scary place. Okay. So you're doing Florida stand transfers. You're doing you're doing burpees, which is an amazing way to put that. In the group setting, are you measuring them getting better? Are you are you measuring like their actual risk? And how are you measuring that? Um, and how are you carrying out these interventions? Yeah, in the group setting, it, it's just a whole another ball game, right? Because you have a lot of variables. These are cash-paying individuals, and so what what we have, have really landed on is we we do the stronger life assessment, and it's a whole host of physical outcome measures that many folks are familiar with. One of them is the floor transfer test. So there is a standardized test of how quickly you can go from standing to sitting on the ground and coming up to standing. And using that as an objective measure, mainly for us to be able to show them change and progress because it's so encouraging and really builds their confidence. And so we'll we'll kind of get a baseline assessment there. And with our folks, we're doing this every six months and we try and do it in a at scale in a group setting. In terms of the intervention, we are are scaling a lot of, of, of these activities. So we're trying to apply it to whatever that person is able to do. So let's say if I'm practicing a, a forward fall and we have a lot of folks that are, we'll get on a, a, a basically a crash pad basically and practice some of the principles associated with, with a forward fall where, you know, I'm going to avoid straight lines. I'm going to allow my elbows to bend to do some work. So I limit that foosh injury, for example, I'm going to try and absorb a lot of that impact over a large surface area of my body versus a bony prominence. For example, I'm going to make sure I protect my head. Some of the folks are going to do that from standing. We're going to practice falls and then get up from standing. There's a lot of folks where they may do that in quadruped where we reduce that range of motion and make it a lot more approachable. So you'll see, we may practice getting to the ground or falling going forward, and we'll have a few folks that are on their hands and knees and then a few folks that, that may be full standing. And so a lot of times we'll manipulate those factors to make it appropriate for, for that particular person. And a lot of times it's what they're comfortable doing. They're very self-limiting with this intervention. So folks are, are pretty clear of what they can handle or not handle uh, in that situation. I feel like there's maybe there's more people like me who would be I would be afraid to work on that <clears throat> mm -hmm. in the clinic. Like, what if my patient breaks their freaking femur while I'm working on this with them? Um, what would you say to those clinicians? You should continue to think that we're very aware of, you know, people based. They fill in their T-scores because they've almost all had uh, some type of scan to where they're aware where they are on that spectrum. So if someone's osteopenic, osteoporotic, we'll do these, but we do the very short range of motion. Like they're doing very limited range of motion. They're, they're able to practice these principles in the hopes of that they will translate to if 
and when they do have a fall. So you can definitely do this in the clinic. The biggest concern from the clinical side that, because I, I did this in the home health setting, is not necessarily from the injury side, because I, you always start very easy, very low. And then based on their tolerance and, and their skill, then you, then you can progress in terms of the range of motion. But it's for you all when the main prime, the primary driver to your all services is typically pain related for the most part, right? Like folks, they have their shoulder pain, back pain, whatever. This is not great. You know, someone that is relatively irritable, they come to you for back pain and then you're having them practice a fall on the ground. That That's a hard sell, right? <laughs> Versus in my realm, it's all performance based. Like they want to be able to walk down the aisle without the walker. They want to be able to go on their European hiking trip now that they're retired. Like it's a lot of performance based goals. And so it's a it's a much easier sell in my context. But a lot of times, especially in the outpatient setting, when pain is on board, yeah, you're probably not probably not doing much of this type of stuff. <laughs> so let's actually that's a great segue. Let's pivot towards the the listener here that is maybe like a new grad who has some older adults on their their caseload and maybe somebody they're they're kind of suspecting this patient might be at risk of falling. Can you kind of walk us through your kind of gold standard falls risk assessment? You know, what outcome measures do you like to use and and why? And then kind of if you're looking at, you know, maybe a mini best or a berg or, you know, what makes you choose which one of those you go through? I'll fall back on the study to make that recommendation out the mm -hmm. gate because there's a lot of there's some really good self-report questions and there's a lot of good risk factors that you can address right out the gate, which is typically a lot of low hanging fruit. And so that walks you through, you know, medications, checking for orthostatic hypotension, which is such a huge factor in people's quality of life and can be relatively common. Foot health, footwear, vitamin D intake, some of these low hanging fruit assessing those risk factors. Then we get into the physical side, assessing their capacity. You know, we have a whole host of outcome measures, which can be rather overwhelming, but especially in the outpatient setting, the way I like to think about it is matching that outcome measure to the, the ability of that person in front of you. And you won't know this unless you actually do these outcome measures, right? Like practicing them yourselves. But for a lot of outpatient folks, like the many best, like you mentioned, is a solid test. And one of the best balanced measures, it's actually going to relate straight to intervention because it's comprised of those different components of anticipatory balance, sensory orientation, uh, looking at, you know, vestibular visual input, those types of things, and reactive postural control, which there's not a lot of outcome measures that are looking at people's reaction to a perturbation, or it's basically a trust game where they're leaning into your hands and then you let go and you do a stepping strategy. And then dynamic gait, which has some portions that you would see in something like a DGI or an FGA or a dynamic gait index or a functional gait assessment. And you'll find deficits in these different components of balance, and that will automatically lead to intervention. So that's really helpful. And I'd say to outpatient, that's probably going to be one of the most potent ones that you're going to be able to do. Now, for kind of a lower functional ability, the Berg can be helpful for sure. And that's definitely what I would see more of in, in the more acute settings or home health. Like, I never ran a mini best in home health. But I definitely benefited from the mini best a ton based on that, how they compartmentalize things with the different components of balance. But Berg is going to be great for a lot of those kind of lower functional ability folks that will be able to assess risk. You'll be able to see some deficits that will lead uh, hopefully to, you know, an intervention, but the Berg is not perfect whatsoever, even though it's probably the most popular one that many of us have learned and, and seen across practice. 
there are some limitations to the Berg for sure. There, there's an interesting review that looked at the Berg scores that if they were actually predictive of a fall within the next six and 12 months and the studies that were in the systematic review was really a mixed bag that there were folks that had high Berg scores, you know, like well over 50 that had a fall within the six month, 12 month period. And there's a lot of folks that were low forties, upper thirties that did not have a fall over six months and 12 months. The Berg is definitely something we can use, but we don't want to rely on it as a sole measure. But I think for most folks listening here, that mini best is potent. And there's some good out, some good cutoffs and MCIDs with different populations, patient populations based on diagnosis that you can pull up on the risk factors. And then you have that physical outcome measure and or two, and you gather that information. And typically what this looks like is it'll be exercise related. We'll build their physical capacity, but you may have to call their primary care doc about their medications or a pharmacist or help them schedule an appointment with the optometrist that they haven't seen in 11 years to update their prescription or call the doc about the orthostatic hypotension. That is such a huge risk factor for individuals. So it's usually a combination of multi, multi-discipline intervention. It's not just exercise alone is typically what you're going to see. Dustin, I know you got a soapbox on this, and so I, I want you to jump on it. Can you talk to us about underdosing and your philosophy about underdosing, especially when it comes to us treating our geriatric patients? That's a really difficult issue because it's easy to underdose, right? Like we and we we can easily justify it that we don't want to hurt this person. If we go too hard, you know, then they're going to have issues. We may do X, Y, and Z. But when you think about the context of the situation, that may be dangerous. You know, under dosage can be a very risky situation in the context of many of these folks' lives to where they are one slip, trip, sickness away from losing their independence or not being able to do the things that they 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 need to be able to do. So it can be an urgent situation. We don't want to waste any time. However, the reality of the situation is if we reach an adequate intensity, uh, let's say resistance training, for example, on day one, what's going to happen day two? Especially someone that has no previous level of physical activity or exercise, which is not, you know, all older adults, obviously, but a lot of folks, at least that I work with, if I hit that adequate intensity day one, like good luck, right? My no-show cancellation rate's going through the roof. So so the way we think about this is we we may underdose initially, but it's intentional. It's intentional underdosage. And it's to build that rapport, to build that therapeutic alliance, to build their trust. The way we like to think about it is we'll go easy now so we can go harder later. And we start there and then we'll gradually progress. And nine times out of 10, that's that's what it looks like maybe for the first few sessions. That's very important insight. Thank you for sharing your <laughs> wonders so that someone else doesn't do it. I guess the before we wrap up, I wanted wanted to give you a chance to bust any myths about falls or false risk. From my realm, and if you look at the the literature around geriatrics, I mean, there is a systematic review, meta-analysis put out related to false prevention almost every week. And if you look at the proportion of of the research that's being performed in this realm, it's insane. And you think about for the researchers that are listening that know what it costs to conduct a systematic review and a meta-analysis, the time and the funds, we are spending so much freaking money looking at this problem of false prevention, and we are almost completely neglecting the other side of the equation, the false preparedness preparing people for the event of a fall. That may be helping them learn how to fall, but definitely helping them get up from the fall. 
in the act of getting up of of preparing people what could potentially happen is that by preparing someone for a fall we may actually be able to prevent one if you expose them to that worst case scenario and they're able to handle it and they build their confidence they perceive their whole world differently fear of falling is as big of a factor as what everyone's talking about and we can impact it in that angle my gosh if we can work on falls preparedness we can ultimately prevent so i think that's the, one of the biggest issues in this realm this topic is that we spend so much time on prevention and we still need to focus on prevention. I think it's more of an and not or scenario, prevention and preparedness. And we have those two going together. That is an absolute game changer for folks. Dustin, th- that was fantastic. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you, that you want to make sure that these listeners hear? Especially when I think about who's going to listen to this. I don't know who you are, but you you have an interest in working with athletes. You probably work in an outpatient orthopedic clinic. Statistically speaking, probably 50% of your caseload is on Medicare, right? So you're working with a lot of these individuals, and most of them are going to be coming to you because they have pain, back pain, shoulder pain, neck pain, whatever. Do your thing, right? Reduce their irritability, get their painful symptoms low, but please do not stop there. These folks are often in a very delicate situation. We'll call this one rep max living, where a lot of individuals are having to give 90%, 95%, 100% of their max ability to do the things that they need to do throughout their life. And that is utterly exhausting and can lead to a lot of issues down the road. They are in this delicate situation and they come to us for their pain and we take care of their pain and then we often just discharge them. What we may need to shift our focus on is to build their physical capacity. Jeff Moore, the CEO of of the Institute of Clinical Excellence, always says this, is how fit will you let me get you? To really ask your folks that question, especially, I mean, everybody, right? But definitely this demographic that they stand to gain gain the most from that fitness forward approach. And if we can increase their physical capacity and make the rest of their life easier, you have set them up for success down the road to save so much heartache down the road by maximizing people's physical capacity. So treat their pain, but don't stop there. I think you may have just convinced some people to be, to work with geriatrics. Chelsea, Chelsea's leaving Stanford. I'm inspired. Reach out to me. I never thought I would even care about this stuff. You know, I was all about ACL prevention and blah, blah, blah. But now I'm like, all right, give me, give me the 88 year old. That's where, that's where the magic is. Dustin, thank you so much for joining us on JOSPT Insights. We will make sure that all the, the, the studies that you referenced are on, on, in the show notes. So listeners, definitely make sure you check it out. For sure. Thank you. One last time, we want to thank Dr. Dustin Jones for joining us. And as always, we want to thank you for listening to JOSPT Insights. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.